Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's bi-weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Hi, I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm Co-Editor of PW Comics World. I'm also the Graphic Novel Review Editor for Publishers Weekly, and I'm also the Editor of The Beat, www.comicsbeat.com. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm their podcast producer. I write for PWCW, and I'm assistant editor over at The Beat. This week on More to Come, Watchmen prequels. Oh. Image Comics' 20th anniversary, Diamond Comics Distributors' 30th anniversary, Terry Moore Goes Digital, um, a retailer survey, and Angoulême, the mammoth French comics festival. But let's get right to it. Uh, Watchmen, uh, the great superhero epic by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Prequels? Oh, Be- really? Before Watchmen. Before Watchmen. Well, this is an idea that has been percolating for a long, long time. In fact, back in the day, there was even some discussion of Alan Moore himself, you know, doing more work set in the world of the Watchmen. However, after it became a literary phenomenon, you know, one of the most acclaimed, well, probably the most General, generally acclaimed graphic novel um, in, in recent history and uh, the, one of the best-selling as well, uh, it's kind of become a literary icon. So a lot of people have reacted to this idea negatively for quite a few reasons. Um, among them, the fact that it's like doing a sequel to a Moby Dick or The Catcher in the Rye, as far as some people are concerned. Especially if Hermit Melville was still alive right. and, and, and well, I was just about to say, I mean, it's kind of weird in the abstract. I mean, a sequel to Moby Dick would be weird, but, you know, here you have Herman Melville uh, sitting yes. over in the corner, quite well, quite alive, up on YouTube every other day, yes. and telling everybody, including the New York Times, you know, how much he hates this idea. And, uh, you know, Moore did, Alan Moore did kind of wash his hands of, Watchmen a while ago during all of his disputes with DC Comics, but I thought it was very interesting that Dave Gibbons gave a statement yes. uh, that was kind of damning with, or praising with faint dams. I mean, it was really so tepid and lukewarm. It's like, well, I hope this project finds the success that it deserves. Or so, I, it well, was he, very he's, he's obviously kind of the man caught in the, in the middle. He isn't as obviously actively in opposition to this as, as Alan Moore is. He would uh, like to still continue to get hired. Yes, and no doubt to get paid as well. I mean, this is look. This is a great literary classic. You know, it, it's it's part of the American canon. You know, whether the the, the literary eggheads want it there or not, uh, it has great popular support. Uh, it's really you know really the superhero graphic novel at its most influential literarily. Um, but when you have the author. In active opposition to the publisher's publishing program, it just is a little bit odd. Right. But it, as I've been telling people, and, and feel free to correct me, only in comics. Well, Not really. I, I disagree with the only in comics because I think where you have a other... Uh, you know, people are always, I mean, they're doing it to make money. I mean, let's not delude ourselves. I mean, it's pretty obvious that they're doing it to make, and it it will make money. And I mean, in a devalued uh, comics market, it's one of the few things that can move the needle. So I understand why they're doing it from that viewpoint. But I mean, anytime there's money, I think this can happen. I think the only in comics element of this story is that only in comics is the creator's role still so devalued. And you know, there's been so much discussion of Alan Moore and, and his, you know, is he a hypocrite? Is he a crazy? Is he, 
you know, is he tall? I mean, it, it, let's just get down to, you know, even if he's a tall, crazy hypocrite, it doesn't mean that right is wrong and wrong is right, okay? <laughs> it's like you have, everybody's like, oh, but it was based on Charlton. You know what? Rorschach is not from Charlton. Well, Rorschach right. is from Alan Moore. Exactly. You know, These are original characters, even if they may have some tangential connection or were based in some small part. There, there's a difference. Old, in my understanding is that actually DC did not want him to use Charlton characters, even though that was discussed at one point. Well, well I mean, he, they were inspired by Charlton okay, characters, good, which is good, different. Good characters. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's one thing to create something which is inspired by another work but is not presenting itself as a direct, authorized sequel. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a very different thing. And one, one other thing, just for, in case the audience isn't aware of this, is, our listeners aren't aware of this, is, I mean, the comics industry, the conventional comics industry, it, it, it's, it's a long history as a periodical industry, primarily, until much more recently, uh, and also as a work-for-hire in terms of their contracts. And authors tend to not have a whole lot of power, even the most famous ones. Uh, obviously, we've had battles for years over Jack Kirby and over Siegel and Schuster. Uh, Alan Moore is in a different situation, but he's certainly been bitten by that part of the industry just a little bit. I, you know, I mean, as I, well as some of his own choices. I, I, what's seemingly really annoying and almost tragic about all this is that Alan Moore knew about all those other stories, and he didn't want to get caught in the same trap. And, you know, Watchmen is not work for hire. Gibbons and Moore did it with the understanding that they would regain rights to it after the book went out of print from DC. And Calvin, as you mentioned, mm. uh, that is standard in any publisher Absolutely. Uh, contract. You know, if they publish the book, they will be able to publish it unless they stop publishing it. Yes. Yeah. And that's and, understandable. And they, but they only stop publishing it if people don't buy it. Exactly. Now, what Moore <laughs> and Gibbons, and DC perhaps to some extent, did not understand was that no comic book had ever stayed in print At before. that point, yes. And then suddenly along came all these great books, like Dark Knight Returns, you know, and, and so many other books that were from the same period. I mean, the indie scene, um, Will Eisner's work. So anyway, all of a sudden, comics were staying in print. And, and so, you know, they thought what was a sure thing did not happen because of collected, its brilliance. Once collected into the book, it became pretty much an instant classic. It's never gone out of print, will never go out of print, and will never revert back to, to ours. Right, and here's the other thing. This is where it differs from the book world in several regards. In the book world, if uh, Stephen King wrote a novel for you that sold very well and was recognized as a genius and change, game changer, then you probably would want to keep Stephen King happy so he could write more works for you that would continue to sell. Well, but that's already gone wrong. Well, I know, but I'm just saying, it's like it, it's gone wrong. I mean, if you look at the uh, history of Alan Moore at DC, there is a distinct aura of paternalism or colonialism or, you know, we know better than you, Alan Moore. Or, right, like uh, the overseer slaver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I mean, except, there's... Except you paid a little bit. There have been some some people who have, you know, tried to keep him happy and been able to work with him. Uh, notably Scott Dunbeer and Wildstorm got America's Best Comics. Um, you know, now now Alan's at Top Shelf where he has a great relationship with Chris Starro. So, I mean, it's not like the guy is yeah. impossible to work with. I mean, he's definitely a demanding creator, but he, you know what? He's yeah. earned it. He's freaking Alan Moore. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, now he does get a healthy royalty from, um, you know, yes. actually, yes. From, you know, from the yes. uh, the sell of a million copy seller. I mean, multiple million copies. Um, but uh, now, the but other side of this, control. he doesn't have control over what happens uh, uh, to the derivative works from the book. 
Um, I will say this, though, um, and this is the other side of the question, is that as much as we may dislike or, or think this is a dubious decision on D.C.'s part, we understand why they're doing it and can't help but feel some measure of curiosity and interest in uh, just what they plan to do well, with these backstories. Well, part of it is that a lot of fans would feel morally safe and happy and upright writing the whole thing off as a terrible, terrible idea were it not for the fact that DC hired its top-of-the-line creators for this. On down the list, the, some of the best... But you know what? I, I mean, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying that they know, they must have known this is a hot-button thing and that they can't just throw anybody on it and people will read it. Yeah, absolutely. They need to, like, pull out their big guns in order to overcome the issues people but would very have quickly, otherwise. They're going to do seven interconnected series. It's going to be called Before Watchmen. Some of the, the creators working on Brian Azzarello, writer, artist Lee Bermejo... Darwin Cook, um, Michael, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, Andy and Joe Kubert. I mean, really, they've rolled out. They really their have. Best I, I, you, know, you know, there was some talk uh, last night. I was at a birthday party for some comics folk, and there was a large gathering, and you know, the subject of Watchmen did come up. And I, I will say, one book that uh, everybody was very curious about was uh, the uh, Dr. Manhattan book by J. Michael Straczynski and Adam Hughes. Um, first off, I think everybody was very curious about how Adam Hughes would be handling a flu penis. But uh, uh, also, uh, these two creators are not known for being timely. Uh, JMS, as he's known, says he has finished the script. But, I mean, Adam Hughes, he is slow. He has not drawn the insides of a comic yeah, in how long, these days, he? I mean, a very long time because yeah. it doesn't make money. Yes. So, you know, Dr. Manhattan might make time stand still. Let's yes. put it that way. He might <laughs> or, need to time travel from Adam Hughes, uh, in order yeah. to read this whole thing. But, uh, you know, that's just guessing. Uh, you know what? It's a great lineup. But, you know, I would rather read something new and their own by Darwin Cook and Amanda Connor. I would rather I would read too. Darwin, yeah. who's a great creator, the New Frontier, and so many things. I would Parker rather... ad adaptations. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, one angle which I've, I've heard, just scuttlebutt, is that one way they marketed it to these creators that they should get on board was, well, if you don't do it, someone else will do it, and they won't do it as well as you well, will do it. Well, that's a really great reason to do something creative, <laughs> isn't it? And it's Black also man. kind of a built-in like, excuse for the, the artists and writers to, the, to make their own consciences feel a little better. Yeah, I mean, actually, I would be, <laughs> let's put it this way, I would be really interested in their take on this subject as fan fiction. Well, you, you But know, the fact that they're making money <laughs> off of it without Alan Moore's okay kind of makes me go, hmm. Well, uh, you know, an interesting little nod is that even though Alan Moore is not involved, and Dave Gibbons will not be involved, they do have have two other members of the original oh, team involved, original teams, Len Wein, yeah. the original yes. editor, mm -hmm. and uh, John Higgins, who was the colorist on the original, and a very fine artist in his own mm -hmm. right. They're going to be doing an ongoing uh, oh, pirate, yeah, backup, story, in the yeah. pi backup mm -hmm. story that's set in the pirate universe of of uh, Watchmen. Which so, is what people read in comic books in the Watchmen universe. Yes, exactly, mm -hmm. pirate tales. So, uh, oh, what a happy universe it was. Yeah. But um, anyway, I mean, you know, so they sign on board. I mean, you know, how much do John uh, Higgins and Len Wein want to get a big royalty check? I mean, uh, you know, I hope they spend it well. I hope they do very well. I'm very happy for them that they'll be making a big royalty check. But that doesn't change the fact. I'll just say it again. Just if you think that Alan Moore is a hypocrite or, uh, you know, crazy or whatever you think he is, doesn't mean... Or a literary mean, saint. Or a literary saint, but it doesn't mean that wrong is right. <laughs> right. And then as a whole added extra sort of Machiavellian thing, DC is selling 
out their one claim to artistic integrity. Like, all along, they're like, well, we were behind Watchmen. We let it be its thing. We let him do his thing. There are no crappy Watchmen sequels. There's no Watchmen babies. And now they can't do that. (laughs) Now they can't do that. Well... Yeah, I'm sure they're losing sleep over that. Well, these books, I believe, they're not losing sleep over it. But when the next time they have this discussion in ten years, and when they don't make as money off of much money off of this as they would have liked, then they're gonna feel bad. Well, you know, I, I believe these start in June. Um, you know, except mm. for Doctor Manhattan, which starts in 2014. But um, you know, we'll we'll be watching. I think people will be chitter chattering. I have me, a theory. My theory is be... that this will be the most pirated comic series of all time. There you go. Well, we'll believe me, we'll be we'll talking a lot, a lot more about this. More, more to come. A lot to, to say the least. more, yeah. Okay. So also, in the news this week, we had a lot of birthdays or anniversaries. February 1st is a very auspicious day in comics history, apparently, or inauspicious for some, uh, for some viewpoints. Um, it, 20 years ago today, the Image Comics came together. Uh, six creators who were at the peak of their game at Marvel Comics and DC uh, got together in a office and decided to uh, start their own creator-owned company and from this we got such wonderful books as young blood and um you know wildcats so i don't know well and 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 a lot of and 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 savage dragon but but also a lot of really amazing books yes Yes. and also a very interesting business model that you know really has um you know, really offered a really important alternative to absolutely, to, uh, and I mean to creators. Uh, even since to we're talking day, about creators, creators' rights, yes. right up to this day, absolutely. And I and I mean, I think even if you, I, as I put in my post, I mean, I was looking at the picture of these six guys, and also Hank Canals. He was like the administrator in those days. Now the uh, an executive VP, or not executive, but a VP at at DC Comics. Um, you know, here are six guys who were top artists. Um, a couple of them were very good businessmen. And, um, you know, what strange paths they've taken, I think they're all better off 20 years uh, hence. You know, mm-hmm. they've all established themselves. Some of them have made fortunes and mm-hmm. lost fortunes. Some of them have kept their fortunes. Um, all of them are still in the creative mix. Um, who were the principals you were uh, There was uh, Jim Valentino, mm-hmm. uh, The Shadowline. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Lee, of course, Jim now Lee. at, at uh, the mm-hmm. co-publisher of DC Comics. Uh, Todd McFarlane, Todd who, McFarlane. who yeah. went on to run his own um, toy company, which yeah. actually yeah. changed, you know, he's credited with changing the toy business. The toys are really good. I will say that. Yes. Yeah. Whatever else you can say yes. about yeah. him. The man does make good choices. Um, uh, you also have Rob Liefeld, right. the infamous <laughs> Rob Liefeld, <laughs> and you know who's actually enjoying a renaissance now as kind of a nostalgia figure God and still creating how. a lot of comics. Yeah. And uh, let's see, who am I forgetting? Oh, Mark Silvestri of Top oh, yes. Cow, yes, still yes, yes. ongoing with their characters, The Darkness and Witchblade. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know you don't see Cyberforce as much anymore. That was their <laughs> other big character when they launched. And uh, I think let's see. Oh, and of course. The one purist, the you know, if you had like little headshots, I guess you'd call him the purist. But Eric Larson, course, who yes. for 20 years has been drawing Savage Dragon, and it's up to 100, issue 180 now. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, he has really stayed true to his vision, drawing his character and staying enthusiastic about it. And uh, you know, I I think there's something to be said for that. And certainly, right now, this is the year of Image. Yes. They yes. are really yes. coming on strong. Yes. All right. As well, they should. Uh, and the other birthday we were celebrating this, uh, or other anniversary that we're celebrating this month, I, I guess that's celebrating is yes. a word to yes. say. Yes. Yes. Mark, uh, an occasion yes. was marked. Yes. yes. Uh, Diamond Comics Distributors 
30th anniversary. Uh, the uh, dominant distributor in the comics market, um, founded by Steve Geppi in, well, 30 years ago. Yes, it was 30 years ago. <laughs> well, what was that, 1972? No, 1982. 82, sorry, sorry. sorry <laughs> my, I'm, a, I'm a comics writer, not a mathematician. Yes. Uh, it says right here when the supporter in 1982. I'm, I'm looking at a timeline that was supplied by Diamond that uh, Jeppy founded Diamond Comics distributors with one warehouse and 17 retail customers, and now they are the only distributor for all intents and purposes for, yeah, yeah. for uh, the direct sales market. And um, you know they're often called a monopoly. Some call them a benign monopoly. Some curse their name every yes. day. <laughs> but uh, you know what? But I, if you want to get a comic into a comic shop. You pretty much have to go through them these days. Yes, and I, I honestly, I mean, I'm not saying having Diamond be the only distributor to the comics market is the best thing for comics. It certainly isn't. It would be really great if there was more competition. And But I think a lot of the people at Diamond are very, very smart, very... Um, so would you, would you say men. that um, its domination of the comics market and the, the lack of any other distributors is Diamond's fault? Or uh, just sort of Diamond being the only one able to hang in there? Well, that depends on who you ask. Uh, there's some people who feel there were some shenanigans back in the day that yeah, definitely yeah. helped uh, yeah. some of their competitors go under a little yeah. fur faster. But, yeah. um, I mean, they're a very tight organization as well. Well, you know, it, it's also tough. I mean, you know, the comics category is uh, in a strange position. Uh, it's not a mass market category anymore. Uh, its sales have kind of been shrinking for years. Uh, you can criticize the business model to some extent, although it was revolutionary at the time. The uh, you know buying comics, you know, uh, non-returnable. Um, um, you know, yeah, I, I'm not prepared to say <laughs> whether this is Diamond's fault. Certainly, uh, Diamond seems to be the only one left standing. Yeah, I, I think Diamond uh, uh, tries to do the best they can. And I think uh, I think it's a whole. I mean, some of the problems. Well, you know what? We have another story that we were going to talk about. I think that that's a segue oh, yeah. in because yes, we, we had yeah. like uh, and talking about Terry Moore and, and Kate. I mean, he he's just doing his comments digitally now. Yep. Yeah, Terry Moore is. Uh, you know, after um, basically receiving a letter from a fan. You know about how uh, I think he lived in a town in Massachusetts, and the only comic store in in his area simply didn't carry. Uh, one of the, the, Terry's latest book. I'm not sure whether it was Echo or, or something else. Um, and just sort of said, hey, maybe you can do it digitally. So he's going to start, he's going to start with Comixology and then he's going to move to the other uh, digital marketplaces. He's not giving up print, but, um, you know, he, th this, <laughs> this poignant letter from a fan was simply that, that how is it that really one of the, you know, our top creators, how can you go into a comic shop in a major population area and can't find his comics. Uh, but, you know, it's... Well, it's, I'll tell you how you can go question. in and not find his comics. It's because um, uh, the, the comic system is very much based on pre-ordering. And uh, on the true. beat recently, Todd, Todd Allen, who writes for me, did a survey. Uh, and, you know, it was opt-in, as they say, and it was set on the beat, so it wasn't completely... Um, you know, uh, open-ended, but uh, he asked, something like 30% of uh, comics readers get their comics from a pull list. I mean, that is really the common the common way to get comics 
Customers are asked to look at either a long list of products coming out or even diamond previews, this gigantic trade catalog, and to, to make a pull list for the next month. And most retailers order only for pre-orders because they simply don't have the capital to float a lot of extra copies on books they're not sure they can sell. So a lot of books are never even seen on the shelves. I mean, it's quite possible that even the store that the guy went into in Massachusetts had ordered two copies yeah, of Echo. Which they for did, people yeah. who had it on yeah, their pull list. They had two copies that had been pre-ordered. Exactly. You were out of luck. So, um, and I, I think um, um, the, uh, I'm just looking at the, the figures here. Um, and yeah, for our, our non comic store visiting listeners, you know, a pull list is simply basically the ability to get get a list of comics that the the, the store owner want. will pull it's for a, you and put a aside for it's you. A it's a pre-order, essentially, yeah. and set them aside for you. So, so according to our survey, which had uh, 783 respondents, so it was a pretty decent mm-hmm. number, um, uh, 38% were a pre-order or have a pull box, um, 28% buy them off the rack. Uh, 19% pre-order comics through a mail-order service. That's for people who don't live close to a comic shop. And then uh, 13%... Although, frankly, I'm impressed with the 13% are digital. downloads. Yes, our digital downloads. That's pretty impressive, so, actually. Uh, <laughs> probably a lot of those were people who mail-ordered before yeah. and then were like, hell of that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, again, this is a survey of a website, so yeah. of course they're yeah. predisposed. But I mean, honestly, yeah. but what this shows is that only one out of three comics is bought off of a rack. Like somebody yeah. sees it and is able to buy it, and of course, and this is a this is really, you know, to answer the question that kicked us off, is that Diamond's fault? I'm not sure it is, really. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of the circle of life and death. But on retail. the other hand, is it really? I mean, is it a bad thing that customers want to make sure they get their comic? And I mean, if you buy from Pullist, does that mean that you don't get anything that's not on your Pullist? Yeah, but it also, it, it isn't about the people who are getting what they want. It's as if, Kate, you wanted to go into the store and buy a pair of green pants, okay? But they had only ordered two pairs of green pants first, and you didn't know that you wanted green pants. You're like, what color should oh, I get? What, all the, green what, I'm, pants what I'm saying gone. is, does this survey say that, that that is, in fact, the case, that they're also not the ones on the racks? I mean, it's... Well, we I don't, don't think know. you can, I don't think you can take guessing. that. You yeah, can't you presume can't, that. No, you can't take the survey to say why there aren't more books in the racks. It. But, I mean, it is a, it is but also an ancillary it, fact that most retailers... I mean, it does make you wonder. I mean, I mean, right now, as we're going through this, this transition from digital... From, from, from analog to digital transmission, I mean, there is, there is this big controversy about browsability and discoverability. Yeah. And, I mean, we even have, obviously, the stories of, of people going to independent bookstores looking at books and then pulling out their phones and buying the books on Amazon. I mean, if, I mean, bookstores, physical bookstores are supposed to be the showrooms well, for yeah. books. And, and Amazon and, encourages people to do that. Yeah, Amazon very often. But, but, but in fact, book publishers, that's why book publishers want physical bookstores. Yes. They want a showroom. They, that's the best way to sell to, books. To see if you right. want them. Right, but exactly. It does, it does make you wonder how the direct market fits into that paradigm, or does it? Well, maybe they're a leader, you know, in like sight unseen or internet but are, shopping. Are comic shops essentially mail drops? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, a lot of them are. Yeah. I mean, there's. Uh, you, you order your comics and you stop by the store to pick them up. Yep, yeah, that's right. So, so you know, it's like putting out a product that is just attractive and interesting on its own and, you know, allowing a consumer to go up and say, well, this looks cool. I mean, yeah. this is a lesser part of it and in, in certain stores. In certain stores. So, uh, uh, you know, again, something like Watchmen that's a 
as they say, pre-awareness, or before Watchmen has huge pre-awareness. I mean, oh, you can God. understand why DC is doing it. It's very hard to break through this cycle. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I, I, I don't know if Diamond's to blame. I, I don't know who's to blame. It's just something that needs to be spoken of and broken yes, well, out of. Without a doubt, we'll be returning to the subject of the direct market in, in future podcasts yeah. because, you know, this is what we do. And, <laughs> we sit here and we and ponder uh, yeah. the state of comics and certainly of comics retailing. Um, uh, I guess we're getting close. To, oh, Angoulême. Yes, yes. Angoulême wrapped up over the weekend. The gigantic French comics festival, the biggest in the world. Well, it's not the biggest in the world. Comic Head is. But it's yes, the, yes, one but it's, of the biggest. It's had 215,000 people went this year. I mean, it takes over an entire... I mean, Angoulême is a town. Yes. It really takes over the entire town. I've actually never been... Um, have you either? No, I've never, never been. I've never no. been either. It's hard to go because it's it's a tiny town without hotels. So you have to stay at like chateaus thirty miles away, and mm. you know logistically it's hard. It's even makes San, getting into San Diego look like a cakewalk. So, <laughs> um, uh, but it certainly looked like fun based on all the pictures. Yeah. And, uh, let's see, the cartoonist Jean Claude Denis was awarded the Grand Prix, which is sort of the the Lifetime Achievement Award yes. for the festival, and there were a number of North Americans also honored at the show. Uh, uh, Art Spiegelman, who I believe won the Grand Prix last, last year, year yes. um, he uh, awarded it to Jean-Claude Denis. This year, um, he was ordered also with a big exhibition, big retrospective. Uh, and uh, and there were a number of other North Americans uh, honored there. Frank Woodring, I believe. Guy, guy, Jim Woodring. Jim Woodring. Yeah, excuse me, Jim Woodring. Yeah. Um, and uh, Guy DeLeo, I know. Um, uh, yeah, there was some manga winners. Uh, yes. The Bride uh, won for the best uh, uh, young publication. So, um, you know, it's a wide, wide respect. Uh, there was a very interesting piece. I mean, having never been, and I, the, you know, the European comics world has its own intricacies. There was an excellent piece in the Comics Journal website mm -hmm. by uh, Matthias Weibel about about the show, and which is very interesting because it said, uh, you know, the winner was uh, Jean Claude Denis, who not very well known here. And uh, in the U.S. and uh, I, I think our tendency is to think, oh, he must be awesome. And I mean, he is amazing if you look mm. at his art. But but uh, what uh, Matthias was saying is that it's kind of a number of picks that they've made that are kind of the same generation of French cartoonists who are out of the '70s mm. kind of uh, magazine world. And I mean, uh, it was just kind of interesting to me to think that maybe that is. He was saying that Spiegelman was a great choice because it really livened up the festival, and um, that that maybe the, the the showrunners needed to think about more about the next generation. Well, it's, so it hmm. sounds like it's the French version of the gee, which guy who made it big in the eighties is going to get nice <laughs> this time? Yes, yes. <laughs> which you know, no one's doubting that these are amazing comic creators, but sometimes you're like, so what about that younger guy? Yes, yes. So. All right, Kate, news briefs. First off, Susie Cagle has gotten arrested at Occupy Oakland again. As we covered in depth in a past edition of this podcast, uh, Susie Cagle is a documentarian cartoonist, and she was arrested while covering Occupy Oakland last year, and now she has been arrested again, giving her the dubious honor of being the first journalist to be arrested twice for co covering the Occupy movement. She is very proud of this. Comment. Yes, I, I I understand that her arrest was rescinded though, wasn't it? Wasn't it was like you know annulled or whatever? Well, I mean, she she was not um, prosecuted, but the arrest actually happened. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, she no charges were repressed. So. Right. Um, 
and DC Comics is fighting hunger. Calvin, over to you. Uh, well, you know, look, this is <laughs> this is a, obviously a venture that uh, <laughs> you know you can't get mad at anybody about. It's actually actually uh, uh, admirable in pretty much every way for a major corporation. Um, they have uh, uh, um, DC is putting together uh, an effort to raise two million dollars for for three um, agencies who are fighting hunger in the in the Horn of Africa. Um, the the whole venture is, uh, is called We Can Be Heroes. Uh, there's a website uh, devoted for it. Um, there, you'll be able to buy sort of branded merchandise uh, and make donations. And DC Entertainment will match uh, all of the fan donations uh, up to a million dollars. So uh, it's obviously significant. A, yes, it's significant. It's a it's a uh, obviously a very good deed. And uh, uh, in a time when uh, we're all sort of decrying how the one percent is lording it all over the rest of us. Um, it's nice to see the 1% actually maybe chipping in a few bucks um, for clearly uh, a, a horrible, horrible humanitarian disaster uh, in the Horn of Africa. Okay. On sort of lighter note, YALSA, the American Library Association's Young Adult Library Services Association, has unveiled its annual list of great graphic novels for teens. And it's a 78-part list of various different comics recommended to librarians everywhere. But we do have a top ten to share with you. Zara's Paradise by Amir and Khalil by First Second. Scarlet from Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev coming out from Marvel Icon. Anya's Ghost by Vera Broskal coming out from First Second. First Second is doing very well in these awards. <laughs> the Influencing Machine, which is not actually primarily directed at a young adult market, but I, I suppose mm, is suitable for it, it by Brooke Gladstone. Josh Neufeld and others, coming out from W.W. Norton. Thor the Mighty Avengers, Volume 1 and 2, by Roger Langridge and Chris Samney, coming out from Marvel, which got canceled. Heart. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's got canceled. I just kept winning Eisner Awards. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. won every award ever, but they haven't brought it right. back. Interesting. Uh, Infinite Kung Fu, by Kagan McLeod, coming out from Top Shelf. Bride Story, Volume 1, by Taro Mori from Yen Press. Axe Cop, Axe of Cop. all things, <laughs> Volume 1. There you go. A comic by um, a child younger than its own demographic by Malachi Nicole and Ethan Nicole from Dark Horse. Daybreak by Brian Ralph from Drawn Quarterly. And Wandering Sun, Volume 1, by Takako Shimuro, coming out from Fantagraphics. And there's what, like... 50-some titles? The, the, the full list is 78 titles. So 78 yeah. titles. Yeah. But these are the top 10. These are the top 10. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, speaking of great comics for kids, Amethyst of Gemworld, the <laughs> 80s classic, is finally, finally collected after all these years. Um, Amethyst of Gemworld was huge at this time. The, this is the equivalent of if no one had made any more let's see what was just comics i can't even think of any of the american shoujo i mean i've never i've never read ahead of its time and so different for when it came out you know so it would be like you know gem the holograms you know which has finally come out on dvd yes that's the same way but but you know if it were for boys it would have come out like 20 years ago in 50 different editions because girl toys aren't cool uh, but Amethyst of Gemworld is just this fabulous fantasy epic about a girl from the real world who 
keeps sort of transitioning over into her princess adult self in Gemworld to have magical adventures. Well, it's too bad Disney didn't put this out, because they would have, like, uh, leverages to the hilt. They would have, like, you know, you'd be having your Uh, Gemworld princess... Halloween costume. If, if this yeah. if this were a Marvel property, Disney would be doing that right yes. now as we speak. Yes, yes. But anyway, so yeah. WB take yeah. note. Finally, yeah. a nice Moving collection. On. <laughs> Moving on. Um, in other good news, the eternal lawsuit of Gaiman versus McFarlane has finally been settled. Happy birthday, Image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh. This is what, a dispute over... This is a dispute between um, award-winning comics creator Neil Gaiman and uh, 90s image founder-comic creator Todd McFarlane over medieval Spawn, which was supposed and to be... Angela. And, and Angela! And Angela, which was supposed to be the medieval um, incarnation of the Spawn character. And uh, Neil Gaiman had created his entire backstory and characterization, and name, and then when he stopped doing it, uh, McFarlane didn't pay him for future adventures of the character, who was thinly disguised and called Dark Ages Spawn, (laughs) but otherwise pretty much identical. (laughs) You can understand why Damon was unamused. Yes. Uh, And why he would keep a lawsuit going for a decade. (laughs) Yes, yes, sufficiently unamused to sue him for a decade solid. Um, But they finally agreed that they are going to split all royalties 50-50, something that... (laughs) Sounds One like, might have wondered like why the decision yet yeah, yeah. yeah, well, would take ten years. You know, go, somebody right? commented that uh, it basically this said the the books had ceased to sell enough to pay the legal fees. And, yeah, is that mean, what it is? That's <laughs> really what this is. I mean, Gaiman had won every single step. This lawsuit literally goes back ten years. Gaiman had won every single decision, and this is, this is and the, Todd kept appealing and appealing and appealing. This is the yeah. Jarndus versus Jarndus yeah. of of the comic book yeah. world. Yeah. Like, and, Have uh, we learned nothing from Dickens? Yeah. No, we, we haven't. But, you know, this is pretty much the same settlement he would have come to ten years ago. Yeah. So the lawyers are laughing. The you lawyers. Know, medieval law team. Yeah. <laughs> and and as, as always, uh, the lawyers win. Yeah. Um, um, oh, I... Uh, oh. Oh, I was going to throw in here one more brief. Uh, Actually, I want to mention uh, Cartoon College, which is a documentary that might be coming out to some kind of film festival near you. It's set at the Center for Cartoon Studies at White River Junction, and um, it's made by uh, a couple of documentarians named um, Josh Melrod and Tara Ray, and it has interviews with Jules Pfeiffer and Art Spiegelman and Charles Burns and Chris Ware and... Jeff Smith, Linda Barry. I mean, uh, there's a trailer up now on YouTube that that looks really good. But uh, I mean, it's a, a it looks like a really great portrait of the cartooning life up in White River Junction. So hopefully that's coming out. Can, can I mention one thing? I mean, this I think we we, we no dropped this off the list, but no. but I, I just have to. This is this is this is one of these small things that I'm making a big thing. Um, the dropping of Captain Marvel's name. Yes, we I, should discuss this. I, we I need to discuss this. I find this absolutely. Baffling. Uh, I, I know Jeff John says that Shazam is what everyone thinks no, the character's no, name okay. is anyway, but is that really the case? Okay, allow me to explain this. And I'm, to... Am I the only one that finds this like, no, no, moronic? No, I, I think it's moronic as well. L- allow me to explain to our listeners. For a long time, both DC and Marvel have had a character called Captain Marvel. 
But the DC version gets his powers when he says, Shazam! Because, well, for a number of reasons, but one of them is that he was given his powers by the wizard Shazam, who is a totally different character. But for a combination of legal reasons and the incredibly stupid reasoning that people already think the character is named Shazam because the book is named Shazam, (laughs) even though everyone calls him Captain Marvel for the entire book, um... His name is now magically changed to Shazam. It's always been Shazam, uh, and we have always been at war with Eurasia. It's odd. It's odd. I just thought I'd bring it up. Well, you know, I mean, uh, like, I can understand. I I totally understand why DC, because they couldn't call it Captain Marvel because of their own lawsuit against this character back in the day. Which actually I'd forgotten about. You're right. Yes, well, back in the day, Captain Marvel in the 50s was by C.C. Beck, a wonderful cartoonist, published by Fawcett. And in an incredible, by our standards, um, legal maneuvering, DC actually sued to uh, saying that Captain Marvel was too much like Superman. And now, of course, nowadays, when there's 8,000 superheroes with panties and capes flying around (laughs) and, you know, who aren't infringing anybody's copyright, you'd think that was uh, absurd. But the judges uh, agreed with DC and uh, put Captain Marvel, could not be published. So that's when he became Shazam. So, you know, but he did not become Shazam. His book became Shazam. Well, his book became Shazam, exactly. But so, the character retained his name. Yes, but I, you know, this is another trademark. It's all about yeah, trademark and copyright. About, about and I mean, you can't legalities. Call Captain so. Marvel, and they're making a Captain Marvel movie. That's yeah. why this was done, except yeah. now it's going to be a Shazam. It's a ham movie, all right. Well, you know, uh, thank you both for clearing <laughs> up <laughs> that moment of, uh, of confusion for me. And I I'm think, just as annoyed as you are. Don't worry. <laughs> on that note, yes. I, I think we can bring I think, this I, session to a close. I think that's quite enough. <laughs> but there will always be more to come. Oh, more yeah. to no. come.